Bears and Sox told to team up on stadium financing pitches. And it's getting harder for towns to ignore their lack of affordable housing. Several towns, 44 towns, were told, you're not in compliance. You're well below 10%. There's one that has below 1% affordable housing. That's Kildeer in Lake County. There are several with 1% to 2%. I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about that and other news from the local housing market. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, February 29th. Are you sick of not being your bank's top priority? We are too. At Wintrust, we take a different approach to banking. We're proud to be your one true banking partner focused on your unique financial goals that's right in your backyard. Whether you're opening your first account, buying a home, planning for the future, or starting a business, we have tailored solutions to get you there. Stop settling and start experiencing a better way to bank at Wintrust.com. Wintrust, different approach, better results. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, member FDIC. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Welcome, Dennis. Always a pleasure to have you. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Let's dive right in. You've got lots of things uh, stacked up for us today. Let's start with your recent reporting about how it's getting harder for towns to ignore their lack of affordable housing. It is. So we have a goal in the state of Illinois that was set in 2003 for every community with 1,000 people or more to have 10% of its housing units qualify as affordable. And rather than go at length right now into what is affordable, I'll say, uh, if you click on the story at chicagobusiness.com, you'll see that we have the definition clickable there. So we're in these five-year cycles where towns are told, you don't have sufficient affordable housing. What are you going to do in the next five years? Well, in this cycle that just started in 2024, it's tighter than the ones that have transpired between 2003 and today. There are a couple of things that have changed in recent years. One that housing activists told me is quite significant is, as of now, if a developer applies to build affordable housing in a community and is turned down, what had been true is the only person or the only entity that could appeal a decision to the state was the developer. And developers are disinclined to do that because they want to stay on the good side of the town board. And if the town board is the one that has voted you down, you don't want to get in trouble with them. So the change is that people who would be eligible to live in an affordable housing development in your community and housing activists can now appeal a town's decision to the state. That is one way that it's going to be harder for communities to either fail to or decline to build affordable housing. There are a couple of other changes that have happened in recent years as well. One of them is that if a community has filed a report in the past saying, yeah, we just can't really build a lot of affordable housing. Now what they have to do is they have to report on what are those obstacles to you building affordable housing in your community? And then one more that is worthy of note is it used to, you know, that in Illinois, we have some communities that are called the home rule, which basically means the state can't tell us what to do. We make our own decisions. The state has now changed this legislation to include home rule communities. So a town can't say we're home rule. We don't have to worry about affordable housing. 
This is important because, uh, as I said, in 2003, the state set these standards. Let's try to get everybody to 10%. Some people say you'd like it to be a lot more. You'd like it to be 25%. But in the years since 2003, our affordable housing crisis has gotten worse. There are a lot of communities uh, where home prices have gone up so much in those 20 years, including in the recent housing boom, that teachers, police officers, retail workers simply cannot afford to get into the community and live. And what one of the housing activists said to me is, if you're saying you can work in our community, but you're going to have to commute an hour, an hour and a half to get to work, you're really kind of suggesting to people that they not come be in your community because that's really difficult. So the idea is that we would like communities to be more diversified as they were when a place like Lake Forest, Highland Park were small towns in the early 20th century. They had a lot of affordable housing just naturally. We'd like to see towns get back to that point. So now the rules are getting tighter in order to prevent towns from just kicking the can down the road and saying, yeah, we just we really just can't build affordable housing. The idea is let's try to get everybody on board and help solve this affordable housing deficit that is not only in the suburbs, but all over the state and in the city of Chicago as well. Yeah. And what kind of timeline is attached to this? Well, so once again, we've just started the next five-year cycle in January 2024, started a five-year cycle. Several towns, 44 towns were told, you're not in compliance. You're well below 10%. There's one that has below 1% affordable housing. That's Kildeer in Lake County. There are several with one to two percent. Those include Riverwoods, Deer Park, Inverness, Kenilworth, and a few others. And they're being asked to really take seriously the idea that you need to find a way to infuse your community with affordable housing. Five years ago, when we were beginning a cycle, Geneva out in Kane County was not in compliance. It had 7.7 percent affordable housing, which of course is a lot more than these communities I just named. And they've sort of remedied that. They built a development called Emma's Landing. It's more than 40, I think it's 45 units of affordable rental townhouses. It was built on what the mayor told me had been classified as excess property. The property was owned by the municipality with the idea that we'd be expanding the waterworks, but we didn't have to do that. So let's put affordable housing there. And he, he was sort of cited, or his community was cited by these housing activists to me as an example of a community that really did it right. But what's interesting is when you talk to him, he points out that was not easy. There was a lot of pushback. You and I have talked about affordable housing. We talked uh, several months ago when I did something about affordable housing developments being built rehab of historical buildings to put senior affordable housing in. And several of the developers said to me at the time, you know, if you're building for seniors, people say, oh, how nice my grandpa can live there. But if you're building affordable housing, not necessarily for seniors, people think, oh, it's going to bring in crime. It's going to bring in poverty. It's going to bring in all these terrible things. So the mayor of Geneva talked to me about how all that came up. And they were able to sort of let people talk about these fears, but explain how it wasn't going to happen, explain how the buildings were going to be well-built, well-maintained, the applicants were going to be vetted. And so Geneva now, after that last five-year cycle, is sort of being held up as an example of how you can do it right. Another one is Northbrook, which has uh, adopted a, a housing ordinance that really sort of calls for a very aggressive infusion of affordable housing. Well, we will revisit that 
many times down the road, I'm sure, as that rolls out. All right. So talk to me now about uh, how the feds have signaled that home buyers should pay for their own agent. We've been talking for several months about this idea that real estate commissions are sort of on the chopping block. The question is, is the traditional structure hurtful, really harmful to buyers? For people who don't know, traditionally what happens when you buy a house is the buyer's agent and the seller's agent are both paid by the seller. I mean, it's an indirect sort of a thing because the buyer has paid the money that the seller then gives to those two agents, but it has been claimed in more than a dozen lawsuits that are out there now that this is collusionary, that it's price fixing, that this needs to end. And so there are all these lawsuits going on. We've talked about several of them. In one recently in Massachusetts, the Justice Department filed basically a friend of the court brief, a a brief that said the Justice Department has an interest in this case, um, where it said, What you need to do is get rid of the commission structure entirely. It said that essentially, unless buyers are paying their own way, the Justice Department won't be satisfied. So the the question here is, will this work its way through all these other cases? And will we find ourselves a few years from now in a situation where the buyer pays the commission to the buyer's agent and the seller pays the commission to the seller's agent. There are a whole lot of considerations that have to go in there. One of the things the Justice Department points out is um, several people have said that if buyers are having to pay their own commission, first time buyers are in trouble because I've saved up the money that I need for the down payment. And then I also have to save up the money to pay a commission, which generally has, because it's in my purchase price, it's in my, my mortgage amount. Um, And the Justice Department laid out some ways that this could be avoided, that uh, it could just be part of the negotiation with the seller. The seller wouldn't be writing a check to the buyer's agent, but would be factoring that amount into the purchase price. So there's a lot still to come. But where we are right now is with all those cases out there, there's kind of a sort of something hanging over them where the Justice Department has said, well, here's what we think should happen. We think the commission structure should be decoupled. Buyer pays buyer's agent, seller pays seller's agent. So we're going to have to watch how that, as I said, how that filters out through these other cases. Yeah, indeed. Well, speaking of revisiting cases, talk to me about this uh, this builder in Lake County that we spoke about earlier. Now the ex-partner of this individual has said that they were cheated too. And I want to emphasize, this was a short-lived partner. The builder is named Adam Schaff, and we've been talking since January about he was accused by some clients of pocketing a total of about $500,000 without doing the contracted work on their houses and pools. The Lake County uh, State's Attorney did an investigation, called out felony charges, three felony charges against the builder. He faces a court date in March. One of the defendants in this, in the case that the clients called out was a man named Sam Kim and his company called Build and Build. Sam Kim has now said, no, actually, I was cheated too. Um, what the attorney for the client said is we had Sam Kim as a defendant because his name was all over all these documents. And what Sam Kim is claiming is that Adam Schaff was using his name illegally. They were officially partners from 2022 until 2023, Sam Kim starts to figure out, oh, this is, this is happening. I've spent $300,000 with this guy and had no work done. He was trying to get a, a 
an ice cream store in Chinatown built called Moo Cow. And he paid Adam Schaff about $300,000, he says, to get all this work done. Nothing was done. They splintered the partnership. Adam Schaff signs a document saying, I'm no longer part of Build and Build. But then, according to this affidavit, goes on to continue using both Sam Kim's name and the name Build and Build. The reason all this matters is it looks as if uh, a a short-term partner was treated the same way some of these clients were. And the only reason we're, we're talking about Adam Schaff, people get angry at their contractors all the time. And in Sam Kim's case, business partnerships go bad. But the reason we are following this case is that this got to the point where the state's attorney called out felony charges against the contractor. And that that really is a very unusual point for it to reach. And so now what we've got is the home and pool improvement clients are making claims that a former partner is also making. Hmm. The plot thickens. I'm sure that it won't be the last time we talk about it. Um, let's now go to a story you did about how a late black business titans woodlawn home is in need of a rescuer. Herman Roberts is a fascinating character. He died in 2021. He was 97 years old. By that time, he had been living in Las Vegas. I don't know for how long, but in 1963, really sort of at the height of his career, he built a house on Vernon for his mother. It later became his house still owned by him when he died in 2021, and now is on the market. It was foreclosed after his death and is on the market by investors for $40,000. One reason this house is of note is Herman Roberts, when you look at his obituary, he started out driving a cab. He ended up building a cab company. He owned landfills. He owned motels. He also owned a pretty famous nightclub. It had several different names, but it's best known as Robert's Show Lounge. This is in the 50s and 60s when Black performers often were not booked in downtown clubs, as as he said. So he had a club where people like Red Fox, Sammy Davis Jr., Dinah Washington, Dick Gregory were performing. And he ends up in the motel business because these black performers can't be booked into primarily white hotels. So he opens a hotel to put not only the entertainers in, but the guests at his shows in. And he ends up ultimately owning six hotels, several in the city, one in Gary, one in Oklahoma, where he was from. So he's kind of a titan of business. He had oil wells on a 2000 acre ranch in Las Vegas. He was huge and influential and also you know, had the sizzle of having people like Red Fox and Sammy Davis Jr. performing in his clubs. Also, I forgot to say, according to Congressman Danny Davis, he read this into the congressional record after Herman Roberts' death. One of the big kickoffs of Harold Washington's mayoral campaign was in the 500 room, which was part of uh, Herman Roberts's main hotel on the South Side in 1982. So very big deal and builds a house, as I said, for his mother, in 1963, it's right around the corner from where the Robert's Show Lounge was. It's a few blocks from his biggest motel. It's the only really physical thing that remains of his empire. Either the buildings are gone. I looked at all the addresses. Either the buildings have been demolished or they've been so completely changed. For example, uh, his old bowling alley is now a church. So there's really not 
a physical memory of Herman Roberts in the South side of Chicago where he was so influential. So his house is for sale at $46,000. It's in terrible shape. I don't know how long it's been empty because I couldn't determine exactly when he moved to Las Vegas. Again, he died in 2021 at 97 years old. So my guess is that he had been there since the 20th century. He'd been there, you know, since the nineties. I don't know that was not able to confirm. And I think the house has been empty for quite a while. It's in terrible shape. You can see mold on the in the listing. You can see mold on the walls. You can see that the plumbing fixtures are from 1963. I tried to reach his family. I tried to reach the real estate agent to find out exactly what the condition of the house is. Nobody responded. All I know is it's not in really good condition. But what I said in the story is you buy this for $46,000, you rehab it, and you have pretty important piece of Black Chicago's legacy. And it also, with the cost of rehab, is still below the price of a lot of houses in in that part of Woodlawn, in South Woodlawn, and far below what's going on in North Woodlawn, where we've seen five and $600,000, in fact, some $700,000 sales. I'd like to see somebody step up to save this because, first of all, if you don't save it soon, it's likely to crumble in on itself. And if that happens then we've got no place to say there was this man, Herman Roberts, who accomplished all these things. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, I hope we have a follow story on this soon that someone indeed has has stepped up and purchased it and is on their way to rehabbing it. You and me both, Amy. Right? You and me both. Talk to me now about a lot in Lincoln Park. Sold in January for $4.2 million, came on the market 50 days later for $5.2 million. In other words, I think it's worth a million dollars more than I paid for it just a little over a month ago. Wow. Uh, I had a hard time getting details. Those details I gave you are all solid. Uh, it's, it's on Orchard, surrounded by some of the biggest and grandest houses that have been built in that part of Lincoln Park. You know that I call this it- This is Whoa Baby, right? This is Whoa Baby because it's Willow <laughs> How Orchard, which this house is on, Burling and Armitage. It's a double lot. It was owned by Mark and Kimbra Walter until January. Mark Walter is the CEO of Guggenheim, the investment house, and the chairman of the Los Angeles Dodgers. They bought that lot in 2003, and about 10 years later, they built a giant house across the street, uh, which we've linked to in the story. And as far as I can determine, they've been living in the big one, which you would. I don't know what they were doing with the other one for the past 10 years, But suddenly, without listing it, they sold it uh, in January for $4.2 million to a land trust. So I don't know who the buyer is, and the real estate agent wouldn't tell me. And that land trust, as I said, 50 days later, marked it up a million dollars and put it back on the market uh, early this week. The listing says that it's big enough for a 13,000-square-foot house, which would by far not be the biggest house in the neighborhood. We've got 25 and 30,000-square-foot houses in that neighborhood. Um, 13,000 square foot house, five car garage. If you were to pay 5.2 million for the land, which now includes uh, an older house on it, you'd probably spend at least another 10 to build. We're going to have to watch this one. It's really interesting because that could be the next giganto in the Whoa Baby neighborhood. Just out of context, that sentence is hilarious. The next giganto in the Whoa Baby neighborhood. (laughs) But for people who walked around there, I mean, you know, when you when you walk around that neighborhood, and many people have, 
it, it's sort of hard to believe. It's harder to believe if you used to walk around that neighborhood in the 80s and 90s. It was standard single lot, many of them two and three flat buildings, you know, not anything quite as massive as what you see there now. They look like homes built, as anybody knows, they look like homes built on the North Shore lakefront, but they're on Burling, they're on Orchard, they're on Howe. Yeah, indeed. Well, we will revisit that story too. Um, talk to me about this baronial Naperville mansion that sold for $7.55 million, making that the suburb's second highest price ever. Second highest price ever in uh, Naperville and the second highest price for the Chicago region uh, so far in 2024. Okay. It's a really interesting house. I wrote about it when they put it on the market in 2021, during COVID, that January 2021, they put it on the market at $10.5 million, And as you said, it sold for 7.55. So it sold for about 72% of what they were asking. Um, it's a 22,000 square foot house. It's on 2.5 acres. And when I spoke to the sellers again, back in early 2021, they said that the idea had been to design something that should fit in in Europe. And when you look at it, you know, it sits way back. It's on two and a half acres. It sits way back from the road. There's this giant lawn where if you were in England, you'd expect to see sheep chewing on the grass, mowing the grass for you. Sure. If you were to drive in, you drive in through a motor court, just like what we see in the big English country houses on PBS shows. Uh, and it so it looks from that angle as if you've sort of come to one of these British country houses, but then you go out back and there's a giant pool, there's a waterfall, there are all these turrets and chimneys on the house. It's quite a place. I think I said it's 22,000 square feet and the the pictures show, I mean, they they had everything in that house. And that's one of the things the, the agent for the sellers told me they did not miss a beat. She had not been the original agent when it was listed at 10 and a half million. It was a different agent. The agent who actually got it sold this year told me they did not miss a beat. They did absolutely everything. And when you look at those interior photos, you see it. Yeah. Those photos at chicagobusiness.com. Everybody can check those out and see for themselves. All right. Talk to me now about this Kenwood home that was formerly uh, the home of the Nabisco founder. It's in terrible condition. It's not in as bad a condition as the Herman Roberts house. Uh, it's been owned for over four decades, or it was owned for over four decades by a woman who died recently and her children are selling it. They're asking $1.6 for it. And that really reflects the fact that it's it needs help. Uh, it's a great old building built in the 1890s, designed by Benjamin Marshall, who designed uh, the Drake Hotel, the Blackstone Hotel, the South Shore Cultural Center, formerly South Shore Country Club, lots of other really fabulous buildings from the day. He designed this building uh, in 1898 for another family, but eventually they sold it to Adolphus and Esther Green. Adolphus Green is a Chicago attorney who in the 1880s starts amalgamating all the biscuit companies in America. At the time, I've learned, remember we talked about this one in the West Loop that used to be, this loft in the West Loop that used to be the Nabisco Baking Building? Yeah. Well, that's yeah. one of the things that Adolphus Green got going is everybody was locally baking their biscuits or crackers and just selling them like out of a barrel, selling them unbagged. And Adolphus Green is the guy who says, you know, let's put them in plastic containers. Uh, and he and he ends up building the company Nabisco. 
It becomes one of the biggest companies in the, in America at the time. And then he moves it to New York. And so do he and Esther move to New York. So they sell this house, goes through some other ownerships. Uh, and now is, as I said, it's being sold by the children of the woman who owned it for the past four decades. So amazing. Big pillared front porch with a turret. Beautiful. You can tell the woodwork has been in the past. Beautiful. You need to do almost everything. The daughter told me that sinks, plumbing, electricity, a lot of that has really uh, just not been updated. So it it's in some antique condition. We don't know if it's from 1898, 1928, 1950. No idea. You have to do all that. But again, it's priced at $1.6 million. There are two and $4 million houses all over that neighborhood. We talked uh, not too long ago about the couple who are building on the lot next door to the Obama house. They're spending about $4 million for land and construction. There are a couple of others in right in that immediate vicinity that have sold in the 3 and $4 million range. So you buy this for 1.6, you put in the cost of, of restoration, and you then essentially match the comps in the neighborhood. All right. Well, there's another story that I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about at some point down the road. Um, what is coming up in the week ahead, Dennis? Oh, Amy, the day this podcast comes out on Thursday is a pretty significant anniversary in Chicago real estate, and we will be marking it with a story that's out that day. Hmm. I'm very curious. All right. Well, we will talk all about it. Thanks so much, Dennis. See you next time. Okay. Thanks, Amy. Before turning over the reins as WGN's chief meteorologist, Tom Skilling spoke to Crane's reporter Corley Jay to reflect on four decades as Chicago's very own. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com slash gist and using promo code gist at checkout. Once again, to redeem this offer, visit chicagobusiness.com slash gist and enter code gist to get this deal while it lasts. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's Justin Lawrence reported that the Chicago Bears and Chicago White Sox are being urged to pull together one financial request for their stadium proposals that state legislators can consider rather than dueling plans that could box each other out. Lawrence noted in reporting that representatives for the teams are hearing the same message from state officials as they jockey for public subsidies to build new stadiums. State Senate President Don Harmon specifically has told both teams there is little appetite in the General Assembly to approve separate stadium legislation. Harmon told Cranes in a statement, quote, I'm not planning to referee fights between billion-dollar sports franchises. His statement continued, quote, I hope the teams took heed of the governor's expression of reluctance to use tax dollars to subsidize new stadiums. The comment came a day after Governor J.B. Pritzker said he was, quote, a bit reluctant to prioritize public subsidies for team owners. The directive to come up with a comprehensive plan for new stadiums also came just a day after the Chicago Red Stars said they would like to be part of the discussions. Lawrence noted that while no combined plan has materialized and one is unlikely to emerge anytime soon, the teams have had an initial conversation. 
In the past week, White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf and related Midwest President Kurt Bailey, the developer of the 78 property where the Sox are looking to build a new ballpark, met with Bears chairman George McCaskey, team president and CEO Kevin Warren, and chief financial officer Karen Murphy, according to two sources familiar with the meeting. Reinsdorf told Cranes last week that he doesn't want to be in competition with the McCaskies. A source familiar with the negotiations said the Bears, quote, have always been more than willing to work with the White Sox to find a deal that can support both stadium proposals. Reinsdorf also traveled to Springfield last week to meet with legislative leaders. As for the Bears, they've re-engaged with the city since Mayor Brandon Johnson took office and have focused on ways to stay in Chicago despite paying nearly $200 million for the former horse racing track in Arlington Heights where the team once envisioned a modern arena surrounded by a new entertainment destination. But the football team has not traveled to Springfield and has been coy about how it would finance the stadium, although Warren said he'd like certainty on the team's future by the end of the year. Lawrence noted that the Bears are now focused on a new lakefront stadium after considering other city locations, including the 78 and the former Michael Reese Hospital site in Bronzeville, where another mega development has struggled to get off the ground without an anchor tenant. Both teams' financial plans involve tapping into bonds issued by the Illinois Sports Facilities Authority, the government entity created in 1987 to finance the current home of the Sox and that subsequently paid for renovations to Soldier Field. While the White Sox are asking for over $1 billion in public subsidies to build a new South Loop home, the details of the Bears' plan for the Chicago lakefront have yet to become public. By demolishing all but the colonnades and other war memorials at Soldier Field and returning the land to park space, the city and team may be hoping to convince Friends of the Parks, a parks watchdog group that has sued the city to block lakefront development, that a new stadium and redesign of the museum campus is in the public interest. Fred Bates, a retired attorney who helped Friends of the Parks in its successful effort to block the Star Wars-themed museum that George Lucas and former Mayor Rahm Emanuel wanted to build where the Bears' potential stadium would be, said the group has not had formal discussions with the city or the Bears. Bates said that if the city and team believe they have a plan that would work to enhance the public benefit of the lakefront around Soldier Field beyond its current use, those discussions should be made public and should include input from the community. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that the American Dental Association is set to sell its longtime headquarters building in Streeterville to the Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago and relocate its main office to the southern end of the Mag Mile. Ecker noted in reporting that in a deal that would expand Lurie's Streeterville footprint, the hospital is in advanced talks to buy the 23-story building at 211 East Chicago Avenue from the Dental Association, according to people familiar with the negotiations who spoke with Cranes. The pending sale price was not immediately clear and the deal could still fall apart, sources said, but Lurie has been mulling a purchase as it has leased more office space over the past few years in the ADA building, which is adjacent to the 24-story hospital that Lurie opened at 225 East Chicago Avenue in 2012. And as it prepares to sell its namesake building, the ADA is close to finalizing a long-term lease for new headquarters and about 60,000 square feet at 401 North Michigan, according to sources close to the matter. The deal is said to be contingent upon Lurie's purchase of the nearly 400,000-square-foot ADA building, which the dental group has called home since it was completed in 1965. 
And as Ecker pointed out, if completed, the transactions would amount to positive news for a downtown office market that's awash in vacancy as companies cut back on workspace and adapt to the normalization of remote work. While the ADA may be reducing its footprint by leaving its building, the space the association is set to leave behind won't add to the crushing amount of available office space in the market. The ADA's commitment to new space on Michigan Avenue is also a win amid shrinking demand. Ecker noted that the sale talks also highlight healthcare institutions' seemingly insatiable appetite for healthcare real estate in Streeterville. Lurie and Northwestern Memorial Healthcare have been bulking up for years on space in the neighborhood for administrative and outpatient offices. Lurie itself has gradually increased its footprint within the ADA building as the Dental Association has reduced its workspace there. The Children's Hospital also leases offices at 737 North Michigan Avenue and more than 100,000 square feet in the former John. Hancock Center at 875 North Michigan Avenue. And Ecker further noted that expansions like those have turned Streeterville and parts of North Michigan Avenue into a destination for companies and ventures with ties to the medical field. With many advertising agencies and marketing firms that once dominated the Mag Mile a generation ago, largely giving way to physician group clinics and hospital administration workers. Crane's Rachel Herzog reported that a venture of Farpoint Development is under contract to pay just over $20 million for a Northside retail and medical office building, the latest opportunistic retail play for the Chicago-based developer. Herzog noted that Farpoint was the highest bidder in the February 22nd auction for the North Avenue collection at 939 West North Avenue in Chicago's Clybourne Corridor, according to sources familiar with the deal. The sales price represents an almost 78% loss for the company's longtime owner, a venture of Des Moines, Iowa-based Principal Financial Group, which bought it for $89 million in 2004, according to Cook County Property Records. Herzog reported that though the North Avenue building is a well-located property in a busy shopping district, its more than 95,000 square feet of retail space is just 15% occupied. The remaining more than 104,000 square feet of medical office and fitness space is 88% occupied, according to a marketing brochure from real estate services firm CBRE. And Herzog also pointed out in reporting that the deal comes a few months after Farpoint, which is leading the transformation of the former Michael Reese Hospital site on the near south side, turned its attention to the Magnificent Mile. The developer paid $40 million in December for the empty more than 117,000-square-foot building at 830 North Michigan Avenue, according to Cook County Property Records, and that property sold at a fraction of its former value, too. The seller paid $166 million for the six-story building in 2013. The North Avenue building is another retail property to sell at a major discount as buyers take advantage of challenged properties and shopping corridors. Following a five-story office and retail property at 100 through 112 South State, sold at an approximately 57% discount in December. And a mostly vacant Magmile retail space, 701 North Michigan Avenue, also sold February 8th to a joint venture of two firms that focus on distressed shopping centers. This week marks the final broadcast for WGN's chief meteorologist, Tom Skilling. Since announcing his retirement from the station he's called home for nearly 50 years, the outpouring of love has been, as Skilling described it, otherworldly. I said to them, is there any way I could just sign off one night and ride off quietly into the sunset? <laughs> and they said, well, that's not going to happen. Crane's Corley J spoke with the Chicago icon about his career, and reflecting on it, Skilling said he was told early on that his best qualities would only stunt his advancement. 
But that kind of attention to detail is why Skilling is the personification of Chicago's weather, as one viewer described him during a special broadcast celebrating the famed forecaster, who said he'd been pondering retirement for the last couple of years. You know, in the early years, I had a news director who would have the news consultants in and the, uh, the talent coaches and stuff like that. And I used to scare the devil out of them because I I talk about jet streams and dew points and all this yeah, kind of yeah. stuff, and they were they were scared to death of that. And they always said, "Well, they, your viewers, um, I I always disliked the condescending manner in which our viewers were referred to. Mm. Uh, you know, they don't understand this." And I said, "Well." First of all, it isn't brain surgery. You know, when you show a jet stream, you show where the weather's coming from. I mean, it's actually, if you gave me a choice of a map to put on the air, I think I'd put an upper air map rather than a one with highs and lows all over it, because the upper air map shows you where the weather is coming from. Born in Pittsburgh and raised in New Jersey, Skilling said he knew since arriving that Chicago would be his forever home as a place that experienced every weather event except for hurricanes. Fellow WGN meteorologist Demetrius Ivory will take the reins for the evening broadcast, a familiar face who's filled in for Skilling throughout the years. Skilling says that's a choice he stands behind. And I told Demetrius, I said, Demetrius, you have nothing to be worried about. I said, the, the viewers know you. You're a known commodity. He's been there 11 years. Wow. And he's filled in for me uh, 18 million times. Mm-hmm, so people mm-hmm. know exactly who it is, uh, who Demetrius is. So it's, it's a great choice. Though he'll no longer be part of Chicago's nightly routine, Skilling says he plans to stick around the station to do specialty programming and special weather reports, and he will continue to post regularly on social media. Skilling also said he expects to do more speaking engagements, highlighting climate change, and he is set to receive an honorary doctorate from Northern Illinois University. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.